This is episode number five with Jeffrey Wade. Coming up. The very first song, he says, I am I, Don Quixote. The whole thing is our questions of identity. Who are you? And this is a man who tries to choose his identity. I started to look at Dowd as a person rather than a, as a funny guy. It made me focus on what was, what was driving Dowd. And then it, it made me ask all those questions that you're supposed to ask. But you're not making brake linings, you know. You're not on an assembly line. You're not a doctor. So just do your job. We took off our crowns and swords and cloth of gold and moved silent on the road to Elsinore. Hey there, thank you so much for checking out this podcast. Are you a subscriber yet? If not, click that subscribe button so that you do not miss anything ahead. And if you have an extra moment, go ahead and rate and review the show in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. That will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all your comments and thank you so much for doing that. Hello and welcome to The Working Actor's Journey. My name is Nathan Agin, and this podcast is in-depth interviews with working actors, people who have been doing this and getting paid for it professionally for 30, 40, 50 plus years. It is about finding out what took them from A to B. How did they get started? How do they actually work on material? What challenged them? What did they face early on in their career? What do they still get challenged by? And what have they learned from a lifetime of acting? That's what the goal and the purpose of this show is. And so I'm glad you are here. Now, a quick word about me, your host. Again, my name is Nathan Agin. I'm an actor. I studied theater at the University of Southern California, done a lot of theater, a little bit of TV and film. I'm also an entrepreneur, work for myself online. I'm a bit of a goofball, which maybe you'll hear on this show. And I'm also a bit of a Shakespeare nerd, love studying it, reading it, performing it whenever I get the opportunity. Just so you know, there's going to be about 10 episodes for the first season of this podcast. In the acting business and in life, there is so much uncertainty and vulnerability and rejection. Wouldn't it be nice as an actor if you could find a little bit of peace in the process? Back in 2010, I found something that really helped me out with a lot of the anxiety and worry, and that is meditation. I really wish I had known about this when I was pursuing a career in acting in Los Angeles. Now, fast forward to today, I haven't missed a day of meditating in seven years. I find it that useful. And that's also why I created a free online course delivered by email. So you can go to freemeditationcourse.com and sign up right now. It has tips and ideas and advice and scientific evidence because it has been proven it's good for you. You can start with just 30 seconds. I guarantee you will experience a difference. Go to freemeditationcourse.com and start your journey right now. Today on the show is Jeffrey Wade, a man of many talents. He is an actor, director, teacher, photographer, and acting coach. 
He was born and raised in the San Gabriel Valley of California. He attended Amherst College in Massachusetts, and he trained at the Central School of Speech and Drama in London. He has done national tours of the musical Crazy for You and The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which he just finished up in 2017. And I actually saw the production with both him and his wife in it when they made a stop in Chicago. It's a really fantastic piece of theater and very glad I got a chance to see Jeffrey in it. He has also appeared on Broadway and has worked for years with the Weston Playhouse in Vermont, and we actually talk a little bit about that working relationship. He has also worked extensively in regional theater. Recent shows include a starring role in Man of La Mancha and also Amadeus, Guys and Dolls, Barefoot in the Park, and Educating Rita. He has over 35 credits on IMDb, and in recent years, he's done appearances on Mad Men and NCIS. He's another actor from the Antias Company who was in Mother Courage and Her Children with me, along with Angie Bird from episode number three and Harry Groner from episode number four. I've also done several stage readings with him, and I've also been taught by Jeffrey at Antias. I actually remember him being particularly helpful when I was working on Lord Byron's monologue from Tennessee Williams' Camino Real. It's a very dense and somewhat abstract piece, and I just remember him being very helpful with that. So some of what we chat about today includes Jeffrey living in Italy as a teenager, his earliest inspirations, the show and role that changed acting for him, playing Don Quixote 40 years apart, working with Steven Spielberg in the BFG, what being a professional means, advice for doing non-paying theater, and a whole lot more. Jeffrey also gives us a look behind the scenes into his performance as the player in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead by Tom Stoppard, and he delivers an amazing performance from that part, so be sure to stick around for that. One of the things I love about Jeffrey is that he gives it to you straight. He doesn't dance around, he doesn't mince words, doesn't beat around the bush. He always keeps it very simple, very to the point, and he does not disappoint in today's show. So here we go with episode number five, Please enjoy my chat with Jeffrey Wade. So how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. It's yeah. <laughs> another perfect day in Southern California. Oh, good, good. You know, I was fascinated to learn that you know Italian. I do. That has never come up, like in all the years I've known you. And I, and I saw that. I'm like, how did I not know Jeffrey knows? And, and not just like knows Italian, like I know, you know, intermediate Spanish. It's like you seem to be able to speak this fluently, right? Uh, I, I did speak it very fluently at one point. I was back in, uh, high, actually between high school and college, I was an American field service exchange student, the AFS. Everybody used to know it because when I was a kid, there was always an AFS student in your high school. Uh, American Field Service is the first and oldest and probably still the best of the f exchange student programs. Uh, it actually started with a bunch of ambulance drivers in World War I who believed that um, people living together would understand each other better and perhaps avoid the horrors of the war that these uh, men had just gone through. 
So they set up this program, and it, it mainly started with bringing kids from Europe to the United States, and they would live for a year, uh, high school kids, uh, they'd live for a year with a family, um, at, not as a guest, but as a member of the family sort of thing. And, um, you know, go to school and get all those sort of experiences. And then it expanded to where American kids were going to Europe. And it, it it's, it's a worldwide program now. Um, people, f kids from all over the world come here and um, Americans go abroad. This is a long time ago when I did it. Um, geez, <laughs> 50 years ago. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so, so the pro programs may have changed, but it's it's very interesting and very challenging. I was fortunate enough to go to Italy. When you apply, you have to, you know, prove that you're a, a person who's flexible and interested, and, and uh, they match you with a family. And that family can be anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. That's that's all you the, me as an applicant. That's all I get to choose: northern or southern hemisphere. And uh, I got matched with a family in Italy and lived there for a year. So, you know, fifty years ago, my 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 Italian was very good. It's it's a little sketchier now. It was a great experience. A great experience. Where in Italy were you living? I was in a town called Mantova in Italian or Mantua. That's the town that Romeo flees to when uh, when he leaves Verona. If, if you recall, that's the way most actor sure, people yeah. know where Mantova is. Uh, it's up in the most fertile, arable region of Italy. So uh, it's kind of, it's not really the, the Midwest of Italy, but um, it's kind of a large agricultural center. It was very big. It was very big in the Renaissance, very important town then. It was a, a great place to live. And in addition to being a high school student, were there, you know, other things you were getting involved with, like just kind of culturally or, you know, as, uh, I mean, you know, you were, you were this young, young guy in Italy. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of things. There were programs set up by the, the, the AFS chapter in Italy. So around uh, Christmas time, there were about, there were about 25 of us scattered throughout Italy, stu American students. And um, we all came from where we were living to uh, to Rome for uh, maybe a week uh, around Christmas time or, or a little earlier than that. And uh, I got together so that we all had a chance to go to Rome and see that stuff. Um, at the end of the program, uh, when we left our, the, our, the, our host families, we all went to small towns in the south of Italy because uh, we'd all been in Nice, you know, basically sort of middle class settings, um, middle or upper middle class settings um, in the north of Italy. And the, the man who ran the program in, in uh, for AFS in Italy thought we needed to see another side of the country. So we were all living on farms and, you know, pretty extremely rural, you know, not not big mega farms, little family farms in the south of Italy. And that was that was an eye opener. That was really, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. And, um, it, it, you know, th there were uh, cultural aspects because, you know, you became friends with people. So this uh, guy who I met in Mantova, uh, we went, a bunch of us went to uh, La Scala in Milan uh, because he was a big opera fan and he thought we should all go see this opera. So that's, that was my first big opera. And, um, 
Little things like that. It's mostly made up. It's an experience. It's mostly made up of small moments, not big things. Mm -hmm. But it was all I could. Sure. You know, I was trying to. I was trying to learn the language. I was trying to do schoolwork. It was. It was tiring. You're, you're doing all that at the same yeah. time. You you don't speak English. Nobody in that town spoke English. It was like being right. in, uh, you know, a big here, big Midwestern city. Uh, you're not going to find a lot of people who are multilingual. Fortunately, it's an easy language to learn. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, there was one point where I was I was very determined to learn uh, Italian because I was I was thinking I would love to visit there. And, you know, I, I still remember from like the, the Pimsleur CD, like it's just kind of uh, burned in my memory. The one phrase, che cosa vorrebbe bere? And it's like, you know, what do you want? Vorrei. What do you want to drink? <laughs> yeah. Cosa vorrebbe bere? Yeah. I, I spent 12 weeks in, in Berlin uh, with a, a, a tour I was doing a show, and um, the phrase I remember is, uh, which means another beer, please. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> very, all these very relevant... Uh, yeah, but those are the important phrases you learn. Yeah. All right, so, so where, did you, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, San Marino, California, which is right next to Pasadena. Everybody knows Pasadena, where the Rose Bowl is and all that. San Marino is another uh, much smaller town right right next to it in the San Gabriel Valley. And uh, what did your what did your parents do? Uh, my dad was an attorney, and my mother uh, was, I guess, a, a housewife. She didn't actually work. Um, although it's interesting, she was always involved in. Um, I guess you'd say uh, uh, liberal or hu humanistic causes, and I'm certainly I'm sure had a big um, influence on me that way. Uh, you know, big. Big in the Democratic Party, which in um, San Marino you could hold a meeting in, in a phone booth. That was <laughs> not a lot of Democrats in San Marino, um, but she was always involved with um, the NCCJ, which is the National Conference of Christians and Jews, um, the NAACP. She worked for a, did a lot of volunteer work for um, the American Friends Service Committee, and then became deeply involved with uh, Cesar Chavez and the. Uh, uh, United Farm Workers movement uh, later sure. on. Sure. Yeah. Wow. And wow. dad was an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, was he doing like uh, uh, criminal cases or doing a lot of... Or he, did, he did all kinds of things. I remember, um, you know, when I was a kid, he, I asked him once and I mean, he had a very small, it was just him and another guy uh, in, in their practice in, in downtown LA. And I think he did a little bit of everything because he said he had done some criminal stuff, but I think he was mainly... Um, uh, I don't know, uh, civil things and contracts and stuff. And he eventually went to a big firm uh, later in his life in Los Angeles. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting thing, though, about uh, he, he was a bit of a performer <laughs> uh, in some ways. He, I, I learned kind of later on that he'd been in the um, men's chorus at Oberlin. He went to Oberlin College. And so he'd been a um, fairly serious singer that way. I don't think he did any acting. And, um, oh, I remember this. I remember when, when he was getting ready for a trial, uh, which is like a kind of performance, the, the, the whole sort of atmosphere in the house would change. You could tell he was getting, uh, you know, charged up or, or, um, you know, it was an exciting, challenging thing. And I, I remember once, you know, as a kid, you don't know these things, but if the, uh, a trial settled just before. It actually, before it actually began, I think they'd probably gone as far as uh, jury selection or something, but then it settled. And I remember, what I remember was his disappointment because he'd really, you know, he was, 
he was set. He was, he was ready to go. You know, he'd done all his prep. And, uh, you know, I think he was, he was looking forward to kind of getting out there and, and mixing it up. And uh, what I remember about that whole experience was that even though I, I think it had settled in, in, you know, in his favor, but I remember his saying he was looking forward to the actual experience of the trial. Which is a a performance venue? Yeah, I mean, it it would be like you know getting getting the the call that you know uh, before opening night the play's been canceled. You know, it's just <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You do all the work, you're all good to go. You know, you're ready to go. You don't want it to be canceled. Yeah, right. Yeah. Do you think that was kind of laying the any kind of seeds for you as a performer, or where did that start? I mean, where was it a very no, artistic I, or cultural family, or? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I, I don't think that specifically laid the seeds. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I can think of you know combinations of things. Uh, yes, it, it was uh, artistic in a way. We got taken to um, you know young people's series at the at the Los Angeles Philharmonic, for example. I can remember the guy's name, Johnny Green. He was the conductor. So, you know, we'd be dragged there, I guess, because I didn't particularly want to go, but we went. And I remember being taken to um, art exhibitions. <laughs> A famous story in our family is uh, when I was in kindergarten or first grade or something, I, I'd, I'd done a drawing and, you know, draw a house. And so I'd drawn a house and the smoke coming out and all that stuff. And I'd drawn a big sun in the corner, you know, with the rays coming down. And the teacher, <laughs> this idiot, uh, had said, you can't draw the sun in the picture. It's just the light, the light from the sun. But you can't draw a sun in a picture. You can't look. I, re I remember this. I remember this. And then for some reason, uh, so I was properly chastened. But then we went to a an exhibition of Van Gogh paintings, where, of course, there are gigantic suns, you know, full suns painted. And and I remember uh, recounting this to the teacher, that uh, I just saw this famous guy's painting, and he's got a sun in it. <laughs> so, so, all that tells me is that, I yes, I was taken to art galleries or exhibitions of something as, as a child. And... Um, <laughs> You know, you, when you grow up in San Marino in the public school system, you at some point, or probably every couple of years, you get taken to the Huntington uh, Gardens and Art Gallery, which are a great, one of the great um, uh, collections of human endeavor, I think, in the world. Because there's a, there are these fantastic gardens. There's a, a fairly good collection of art, uh, painting, sculpture, all kinds of things. And and then a library, a, a scholarly library of of the very highest caliber, you know, most of which is not accessible to the public. It, it's it's a place where scholars work, um, but you can go through that. They have an exhibition room, and you can see, you know, first folios and uh, Shelley's notebook and um, uh, just all kinds of things that are uh, wonderful. It's a great place. So you get taken there as a kid. So yes, I had exposure to the arts. And so, so when did, uh, when did acting drop in? Was that in high school at all? Were you doing performances? Yes. It, it was, it was uh, junior high school. And I do remember, um, I, I remember a couple of things that interested me in acting. I remember watching my brother do a play when he was in high school. The Diary of Anne Frank actually was the one. Uh, and, and thinking it was kind of magical the way he became another person. 
he of course played the lawyer in Anne Frank. <laughs> he also was a lawyer. My father's a lawyer. My brother's a lawyer. I got a lawyers, a lot of lawyers in the family. But I remember th thinking that was kind of magical. Um, I, I remember s some movies that uh, excited me, and the there's this element of magic of transformation always. Uh, I remember um, the Jimmy Stewart Harvey, which as much as anything uh it, it it's delightful and it's it, the you know the play itself is kind of magical and uh, the performance and everything about it uh, entranced me so um th that that may have had an influence i mean it is with that with that particular movie it is kind of fascinating like how how, how the imagination is so in play there like how you have to really mm believe that this guy is seeing this six foot tall rabbit and it's just yeah it's just you know amazing like how committed you know that actor is and and how you start to see what he's seeing like it just and it is yeah. it is that magical quality of like wow i'm being, it is. i'm now seeing this <laughs> yes and 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 there's another story about harvey which which i'll tell you later you, you can remind me um but so that that was an influence um i remember seeing the movie version of uh Arsenic and Old Lace. And I, I happened to, it, the way television used to work in the old days, kids, you just, you know, you couldn't choose what, what was on. I just happened to catch it, uh, probably within the first minute or two, but I didn't know what I was watching. And I didn't know it was, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't really know who Cary Grant was. Um, so this is kind of a, a a reminder that everything's better if you don't know the stars, if you don't know the actors, if you don't know the story, you have a kind of clean experience, which is what I did with Arsenic and Old Lace, of all things. And I just sort of happened to catch it. And I have this memory of watching it alone. Uh, but, you know, I'm just on regular television in the, in the way back when, <laughs> when you had to walk up to the television and turn the knob. Of course, yeah, the clunk, clunk, clunk to like yeah, turn which yeah. you know, channel you want to go to. But I remember watching that and, and once again, just being uh, transported. So, so I guess it's interesting, our conversation, the, you know, what, what was it that caught me about this uh, profession or acting or theater in general? And I seem to be using words like magic and transported and being taken completely out of yourself. So those th things, for whatever reason, all had um, a real appeal to me. Well, I mean, what's what's also interesting, and this is this is like a huge jump forward, but I know you've also played um, Don Quixote in Man of La Mancha, which is yes. this uh, another kind of journey of magic oh, and, yeah. and imagination. And and I mean, it yeah. is kind of interesting that you know that that was part of your career. Yeah, it is. And actually, I've I've, I've played that twice. I played it once when I was in college, when I was twenty uh, three or so, and then I played it last year. When I was uh, sixty-six, and um, it's r really interesting. You know, you learn it, it's it's very different. Um, and I, I don't think I was probably horrible even the first time because it's a you know it's a character one can um, relate to. But you know, when you get older, and and you know, it's really it's a story. Um, I I could talk about this play for a long time. It's really a story about Cervantes, who's trying to save himself he's trying to save his work uh by acting out this story of don quixote but then don quixote is also a man who's trying to find his identity the very first song he says i am i don quixote the whole thing is our questions of identity who are you 
who are you? And, and this is a man who tries to choose his identity. He's just a, you know, he's, he's a kind of low-grade Don who decides to become this knight uh, from, you know, 400 years ago. It's as if we all started walking around in Renaissance gear. That's the way he would appear to the, his contemporaries. And it's, it's every time he walks into a place, everybody goes, what the, who's this guy? You know, what's the matter with this guy? And it's a man who has, who has chosen completely to re-identify himself. And he has to keep saying it. Who are you? I'm Don Quixote. I'm Don Quixote. And people are trying the, the thrust of some of the other characters, you know, the bad guy in the place to make him see who he really is. He's just um, trying to force him back into reality. And he does this in the end, you know, by presenting him with mirrors. He forces him to look at himself. Not a, not a noble knight, just an old man who's pretending something that isn't real. And that, that was, uh, you know, I remember doing that scene as a 23-year-old, and, and it was effective because it's well-written, and um, it's an effective piece of theater. But when you're, uh, you know, a person who's can see the light at the end of the tunnel now, and, and you get a great scene like that where someone says, here, look at yourself, look at yourself. You've accomplished nothing. You're nothing. And here's all you are, just this. And there are actual mirrors there on stage, you know, and you're looking at yourself and you're covered in makeup and sweat and it, it doesn't look good. Th those are easy scenes to play. Um, it's, a, it's a physically demanding and it's emotionally demanding scene, but it's, it's easy. You know, it's, it's a pleasure. So we're, we're really getting into the, <laughs> the meat of it here. I, I will say, I would say when uh, you asked me about um, when I started, I, I, I actually started when I was in seventh grade acting. I did a play called The Prince and the Pauper, and that was the first sure. play I did on stage in front of people. Played the Latin instructor. <laughs> had, had you only played the Italian instructor, it would have been uh, a great foreshadowing. It would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, with, with uh, Man of La Mancha, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not as familiar with the play as you are, but it, it is, you know, it, it's so universal, that idea of we all want our lives to have mattered. We want to have done something that lives beyond us in, in some way that people remember us. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's uh, like you said, I, I, I can I, I can understand what you're saying in terms of like these are easy scenes, because, of course, on the one hand, they're extremely challenging and demanding. But on the other, you know, there is um, writing sometimes that so clearly speaks to what we are feeling that it's just, yeah. you don't need to spend as much time going, what is the motivation? What do what, you know, what, where's yeah. the character coming from? It's just like, Oh, I get this. Yeah. And uh, easy may not be the, the best, but it's, it's available. Those, those, yes. um, the things that that character is going through are, are available to us and, uh, and to the audience. It's not a big reach for them. To right. Understand. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, um, I, I wanted to I wanted to get to college, but you said you had another Harvey story. What what, what was that? Well, it's it's interesting because it, that happened in college. So I'd I'd always wanted to play the part of Elwood P. Dowd, and I still do. I still think I could play it again. But I, I got an opportunity in college, and and by then, you know, I was um, acting was was working out. You know, I I, uh, I seemed to have a, a, a facility for it, and uh, so I got. Uh, th there was there was a summer theater program at um, I went to a place called Amherst in Massachusetts and uh, so we were doing the play 
and we were rehearsing it, you know, all the football players were there getting ready for the opening of football season. The actors were there acting. School hadn't started yet. Classes hadn't started. So one of the plays we were doing was Harvey and I got to play Dowd and I thought, this is great. I'll be, you know, I'll be able to do this because I'm a kind of Jimmy Stewart type and, you know, the, all this stuff is funny. And in in the course of rehearsals, I was finding that actually it wasn't working very well. It wasn't coming uh, somehow. <laughs> this character that I thought I knew, uh, and this was, you know, kind of perhaps a young actor thing. And I remember having a phone conversation. Here's another, another throwback thing because uh, Amherst is way out in Massachusetts. And I was speaking with my mom back here in California but I was on a payphone. I, I can remember this conversation. I remember where I was standing on a payphone, which again, nobody knows what the hell's a payphone. Uh, having this conversation with her and saying, you know, it's, it's funny this isn't working out as, as easily as I thought. And she started talking about having seen Harvey on stage with the original Edward P. Dowd, who was an actor named Gig Young, a uh, terrific actor. And she was talking about how, what a, great performance it was, different from um, Jimmy Stewart's. She said there was something more to it, something deeper, perhaps, or something. And then she mentioned that um, Gig Young was, a, was a, a serious alcoholic, you know, died way too young. Terrible, terrible alcoholic. And it, it probably ruined his career in the end, certainly as a stage actor. And it, that kind of sprung it for me. Um, mm -hmm. Because I began to, I started to look at uh, out as a uh, person rather than a, as a funny guy, rather than as a charming guy who's like Jimmy Stewart and everybody likes him. And so I'll just be charming and everybody will like me. And, and it, it made me focus on what was, what was driving Dowd. And then it, it made me ask all those questions that you're supposed to ask. You know, he's, he's funny and he's sort of overly direct to people, you know, he says, uh, Someone will say, uh, oh, it's nice to meet you. You know, we'll have to get together sometime. At which point he'll always, he, he says something like, when? <laughs> and they go, um, well, I, I don't know. How about next week? He says, Thursday? You want to come around <laughs> on Thursday? And they go, sure. And, and then he has these famous speeches I used to use. One of them got me into drama school, actually, about, about um, the nurse at the sanitarium. He says, what do, you, what do you do? What do you do with Harvey? She's trying to humor him. And he says, well, we sit in the bars and we talk to people and um, – we have a couple of drinks and pretty soon people come over and they talk to us and they tell us our problems. And I introduce them to Harvey and he's better than anything they have because he's so big. And when people leave, they leave impressed. Well, that's a, that's a, a story of a man who has no friends. He's a lonely man. Mm -hmm. He drinks all the time. And then I began to think this, this was written in 1950. That's five years after the end of the war. This is something thing I often do with characters. I think, well, you know, what's, what's their age in the play or whatever I'm doing? Um, when were they born? What did they live through? Now, here's, a, here's a, you know, uh, he should be sort of early middle-aged man who's been through the war. So what was his war experience? Even if it wasn't combat, it was something else. And, and I began to, to look at, at him instead of as this funny guy, as a man who there were reasons why he behaved that way. And, and it, it opened everything up. It was really, really interesting. And uh, I guess maybe a kind of seminal moment. No, it's, it certainly sounds like it. And I, and I can definitely relate with my own acting. I can look back and, and there's this, sometimes you have an idea of what you think 
you should be doing right. on stage of how you, how the character is supposed to be and how the acting is supposed to be and how you're supposed to say your lines. And, yes. and then you, well, hopefully, or maybe ultimately you can understand like, oh, wait, if I just ask the right questions and do the right research, and that can be different for, you know, everybody, but that can start to inform, oh, who this person is, as you were saying. It's like you're, yes. you're starting to actually inhabit this person as opposed to playing at an idea of what you think it is. Absolutely right. Yep. Yep. So you, you mentioned getting into drama school. So I, I mean, you know, obviously going to Amherst was a huge leap from California going from across the country to mm -hmm. Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. What was the decision to go to London or, 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 I mean, did you apply to a number of different places and then just London was the right spot? Um, yeah, kind of a combination of those answers. Uh, I, I did, uh, when I was at Amherst and, and things were g going very well there in terms of acting. I got to do a lot. Um, interesting thing there, kind of side note, it didn't necessarily have a great theater department. It was very small and um, maybe not the most challenging of all time. But what you did get to do, or I got anyway, and a, a number of us, uh, you got a lot of stage time and you just got to do a lot of things. You know, it was a very good theater. Uh, you know, about 400 seats and, you know, real stage house and everything, the, the, a real theater. So we, we got to do a lot. And fortunately, there were uh, a number of other good actors at Amherst and Smith and Mount Holyoke, which, you know, the, are the schools in that area. Amherst at the time was all male. Smith and Mount Holyoke, of course, are all, are all uh, women uh, schools. But there was a lot of... Um, <laughs> You know, we, we'd have to draw from all those schools. Right. They, they, a lot of intermingling, yeah. yeah. Yes, I've, I'm trying to avoid the word a lot of intercourse between those <laughs> schools, but there was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so th there just happened to be a bunch of people who were really good actors, and, and everything worked out. So as I was approaching the end of my time there, I, I, I thought I wanted more training. It may have been a function also of sort of not wanting to deal with the real world, mm. but... Yeah, I, I wanted more training. And uh, I didn't want to get an MFA. I wasn't interested in doing any more academic work. That wasn't my main thing. So that sort of cut out a lot of programs. You were more looking for like the I was the actual training. Like, you know, what, you know, yeah. Like yeah. Juilliard or, you know, um, the Goodman School at the time was a, a great one here. And um, yeah, I was looking for, a, I wanted a conservatory. I didn't want to do any more academic work. So that sort of narrowed things down. And I remember having a conversation with a guy who was the head of the uh, theater drama department at Mount Holyoke. Really good, interesting guy. And he said, he said, you should go to England. You should go to England to get training. That's what he thought. You know, it, England sounded interesting and appealing. I've always been kind of an Anglophile. It, it's uh, kind of a long side. I don't want to go on too much. I did apply to several schools there. And I think I applied to some schools in, uh, in the U.S. through a, a weird combination of circumstances. Central scheduled me for a, an audition on the day I was going to go to England with uh, uh, a friend of mine. Uh, I, I hadn't asked for an audition there. I thought that I was going to audition for them in the States. But anyway, it worked out. I Flew to England on that, you know, on that night, the next morning, you know, a few hours later, I went to uh, Central and did my audition pieces, one of which was a Harvey speech. <laughs> and then their, their process there was, 
they put you together with a bunch of other people who had done their preliminary auditions and who they were interested in. And then you'd sort of do a day of classes and things. You'd do a, a voice class, a movement class, um, something called an ear test, I remember, um, uh, various things. Uh, they would then they would work on your audition pieces. And after each one of those sessions, people would be cut. It was, it was very straightforward, and, uh, you know, we'd all gather in this uh, kind of uh, central area, uh, a woman, Mrs. Gray, would come in and she'd read off some names and she'd say, you're, you're free to go and the rest of you can stay. And it whittled down to the end of the day. It, was a, it took the whole day at the end of the day. Uh, a woman named Carol Royal and I were the only ones left. And they said, well, you're, you're the first two members of the class if you want to, you know, if you want to be in it. So I, I wow. had then, at that point, I'd spent a whole day with these instructors and, and learned the sort of the way this school worked and, you know, the kind of type of work we'd be doing, and also the, the actual people I would be working with, the, the instructors, professors. Yeah, it sounds like such a much more kind of humane way to go through the it's audition incredibly process. And, and it, it spoiled me for, uh, it, I mean, like, don't get me started. I, I, I do not understand why it <laughs> takes people so long. I don't, to cast people. You know, I, I don't understand why you can't, say, I mean, those people made a three-year commitment to me. And, and Central doesn't do that bullshit of admitting a class of 100, only ever intending to matriculate uh, 25. You know, a lot of uh, American universities, I think, do that uh, programs, which is, as far as I'm concerned, just a way to steal money from people who, uh, you know, put in a year or two of drama education only to be cut. I mean, I don't understand that. I, I just don't understand it. Central, um, it was a three-year course, so they were making on that day a three-year commitment to me on the strength of what they saw. And I, I do not understand why it takes people so long to make up their minds about things. They got to see you once, they got to see you twice, they got to uh, you know, come back again, third time for, you know, little pissant shows. It's, it's extraordinary. And so this, I mean, <laughs> I can see you laughing. This experience uh, ruined me uh, for that kind of thing. Uh, Central, you know, they, they admit a class of about uh, 25, 26 people. And they, they say, you know, they, they, would, they try to build it as a, um, almost like a little rep company. Because in the third year, you're doing public performances, not until the third year. Um, you know, and agents, casting directors, all kinds of people come to see these things, and the general public. But, and you're only ever working with your own class. You know, the, the, there are three, three years of people there at a time, but you don't, classes don't mix, you know, except socially. So they're trying to build a little rep company. So there would always be, you know, a few more men than women, because that's the way plays are written. Uh, there'd be some character people. There'd be some, you know... Uh, people who are just unbelievably beautiful, there would be, uh, you know, all kinds of things because they would have, they're going to have to cast their shows from that group of people. Yeah. They, they made the decision and I liked it so much that I just canceled my, um, applications everywhere else. And that's, wow. that was the end of that. Then I started, <laughs> that was, that was in, I think January of, of 73. And then in the fall of 73, I started at central. Well, and, and one of the things I love about London, I've only been a couple of times, is how much of a theater town it is. Like it's, I, I mean, the, cool. the, the couple of times I've been there, 
you almost wouldn't know that movies are happening. Like you see just as many advertisements for shows, for theater as, as anything yeah. else, if, if not more so. Um, and so I, I can only imagine even at that time, you know, there was still, I mean, and there, you know, there was just so much great theater to see, whether it was at the National or, you know, other places in the West End. So I imagine that was part of the kind of less, quote unquote, formal education is just going to see uh, a lot of great theater. Uh, absolutely. And it was, uh, it's more expensive now, but it was, um, you know, sort of reasonably priced. And I think it's still certainly compared to, uh, to Broadway. Um, it's still fairly reasonably priced. I, I don't know. I haven't been there for a while, but uh, one of the, one of the great perks at, um, Central was, uh, and b by the way, the school is in totally different now. I have no idea what the school is like anymore. Um, I know that they now only offer a, 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 a BA program. I mean, you have to you have to get a degree now. We just came out with a certificate that said we'd been through the course. You know, like here's my acting certificate. You know, <laughs> like a license or something. Um, so it's you know they they've had to change uh, to keep their funding sources and so on. But uh, one of the things they did have was in your first year, which is not a demanding work year, um, you could uh, be an usher at the National Theater, which at the time was at the Old Vic. So I would, oh, wow. I would do that. Yeah. And, and you know, you'd finish school and go down to the Old Vic and you could go, um, you could use the canteen, which is, you know, this sort of, food place and since you're an employee i don't think you had to, i can't remember if you didn't have to pay or if it was like just a ridiculously low amount of uh low low price but you could you know you could go there and grab a meal and you'd be eating with Lawrence olivier and alec mccowan and jenny agatha and you know uh, holy cow yeah i mean they'd just be at the next table i never i never actually worked up the nerve to speak to these people um uh, but they they were all right there. It was just you know it's like sitting in the green room kind of with them. Uh, but the the great thing, of course, is that you got to see um, some terrific shows. But the really great thing was that you got to see them over and over again. So I saw the original mm. production of Equus maybe fifteen times. Uh, you know, not every single word of every performance, but um, you got to see you see it every time. Alec McCowan in this uh, in incredible performance. But, uh, you know, that kind of thing is, um, you know, you learn stuff by, by watching that. Well, yeah, and certainly, you know, it, it allows you over the course of a production to, you know, to notice things as a fellow actor of like, oh, this is how, this is how, you know, there are, you know, you get to kind of look a little bit deeper, you know, about what mm -hmm. is actually, how are they actually doing this? Um, you mm -hmm. know, because the first time it just might be the experience kind of washes over you and you're, right, you right, know, right. you're drenched in that. And then the more you see it, you're, you're understanding, okay, here's, here's the craft. It's not, I'm watching, um, you know, these, uh, exercises on stage, but you're, you're seeing what they're, what they need to do to, to, you know, uh, inhabit this. Yeah. Yeah. That was a real, um, boon 
Yeah, I know. I mean, when I lived in Los Angeles, um, you know, I, I didn't usher, but I was involved in like the ovation awards. And so, you know, you just get to see a lot of theater that way. And, and yeah, it wasn't yeah. the same kind of That's experience of getting to see it over and over, but you can see a lot of theater. But in Chicago, uh, I know there's a couple different programs, but Steppenwolf has an ushering program that anyone can join. And I've done for the last few years. I've seen uh-huh. almost everything they've done. And it's great. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and of course you talk about now, nowadays, the cost of what it takes to go see a play. I mean, seats at Steppenwolf are not cheap. I, I, I know I scanned I the tickets and, yeah. uh, it's, it, you feel like, you feel like you're getting away with something that you've, you know, and I'm, I would imagine it was similar to national that like someone's going to grab you and go, what are you doing? You got to get out of here. Oh, no, no. I think we had little, I, I seem to remember having little uniform jackets, little horrible. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I mean know, just the idea of like, you feel like. <laughs> so no one is going to throw us out. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, no. Not, not that they were going to actually throw it, but you feel like you're getting away with something because it's such an amazing experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you're seeing all this stuff for free that people are paying good money for. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it's, it can be such a valuable lesson, you know, in terms of, uh, of the craft and all that. Well, I, I am curious. So was was the school? It was it's a central school of speech and drama, right? That's the official. Yeah, that's title. what it, that's what it was called. It's now called. They changed the name to the Royal, the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. Okay, all right. Well, you know, and it's funny. I just I worked with someone recently who went to um oh geez, what is it? The Royal Royal is it the Royal Academy um or the yeah Rada yeah. Royal Academy of Dramatic right. Arts. And and she said uh, she goes, you know, everybody in America. She's an American. She said everybody in America, you know, uh, swoons when they hear that word Royal. But she goes, it's pretty much just saying federal. Like you know, if you said like the federal yeah. school, uh, you know, yeah. of, of, of drama, people wouldn't have the same kind of <laughs> Americans wouldn't have that's, the same kind of reaction to it. That's the reason they tack. It. I mean, they do have a, you know, you have to have a, a um, you know, somebody has to put their crest on your place. Right. You can't just decide. You have to have a sponsorship, a sponsorship but right. from somebody, you know, the, the Duchess of Kent or something. Right. Um, one of the things that comes up for me with you, Jeffrey, is that, you know, I want to give you my own um, kind of perception of who I, I think you are as an actor, because to me, you've always seemed like an actor who is... Like very sensible, very level-headed, um, very you know calm and collected, and and it's you know these are all very um, I would say kind of desirable qualities because it's very easy to for me to get in to get into your head to to overly worry to be overly anxious and all this kind of stuff and I've and I've always seen you whether as a teacher or as a fellow actor just someone that's just kind of like. Well, no, that's it, it, this kind of very cut and dry sense of, well, this is what we got to do and this is what we're going to do. And I'm curious if that is at all ac- accurate. Is that, uh, you know, uh, how you approach things? I, I would say all that is true. And if that's your perception, then that that's your perception. And, and uh, it, you know, it has value. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm sh- yes, that's the way I come off. Uh, I, I have as probably as turbulent an inner life as anyone. That's part of, you know, an actor's resource. Um I'm not, I'm not teaching a class at uh, at Antius, the company that we've both been involved with at various times, right? Uh, and I was talking yesterday to the class about, um, you know, one of the joys, one of the fun parts about being an actor is you get to access these parts of your life or these things, these inner things you wouldn't even talk to anybody about. Uh, and we usually instantly think of, you know, horrible kind of nasty things, but there are also, um, inner joys, you know, that, um, uh, 
that you might not be willing to share with the general public, but when you're playing, we're doing a scene from Canada, when you're playing a character like Marchbanks, who's a poet who kind of lives in his own world, uh, you know, when you're playing that part, then you get to do that for a while. And we, we, you can't live that way. You can't exist that way, you know, day to day. Yeah, but I, I am a probably a very, you know, kind of straightforward um, person. That's actually the kind of actor that Central would attract. It's probably, you know, the kind of person that was turned out by my education and the people, uh, the, the people I came up against, uh, you know, teachers, starting right from way back in junior high school, you know, Mrs. Gray and Miss Circo. I remember those people. Um, they, those are the people who give you uh, permission or they give you uh, um, um, uh, uh, examples. And uh, the way I work seems to, it works for me. It seems to get things done. It's the kind of actor I like to see. I remember uh, there was a guy at um, Central. It was the first time I sort of remember consciously having this feeling. A guy named Sam Blackwell. He was uh, a couple of years ahead of us. He's now, a, I don't think he acts anymore. He's now a writer and uh, he directs also. And I remember watching him because, you know, we, we first years would watch the third years performing. And I remember he was the kind of actor when, when he came on stage as an audience person, you kind of relaxed, but not, not in a way that, not in a, oh, you know, in a way like you knew this, this guy was going to take you along. You didn't, uh, not, not that he wasn't, you know, scary occasionally or, or startling or all those things that you want to be as an actor, but, but there was never any, um, I just remember this feeling that he, he would take care of you. He would, you were reassured when he came on stage and someone, uh, in a very great compliment to me said something similar, not, not too long ago about, uh, you know, w watching me perform. And I thought that is just the very highest sort of compliment. It's. And it doesn't mean that, that um, you know, you're not going to be surprising or, or you're not going to sort of give your all. It doesn't mean that I hope, I hope as an actor, I don't sort of coast along in neutral in a way that doesn't impinge. But uh, you just, you just need to do, uh, you just need to do your work so that you can interact with people, take care of the audience. You're, you're there's a lot of caretaking going on. Um, I did have a teacher once who told me I was too generous, which is a note I remember in a, in a scene or a show. I can't remember. It was probably, it was probably at school. What did that, what did that mean to you? What did the, to be too generous? Um, it's hard to describe, uh, you know, in, in that particular scene, I somehow wasn't, um, uh, I, I, I can sort of know it when I see it, but it's hard to describe, mm -hmm. uh, as an actor, I wasn't really fulfilling what I, I wasn't trying hard enough probably to accomplish what I needed to accomplish in the scene, what my character needed to accomplish or get or all those things, you know, what was my objective? What was my, what was I trying to make the other person say, do or feel as uh, Sabin Epstein says that there, um, uh, you know, there are things you have to do. You have to typically be, you know, be moving forward. And I probably wasn't doing that strongly enough. You know, there's a there's a balance. So, would you say the kind of the antidote, at least for for you, um, when it comes to that 
turbulent life or the anxiety or the worry that can creep in? Is it just the focusing on the work? Like, Oh, you mean life in general? Life in terms of as an actor, because there's just a lot of opportunity for um, stress and uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot, uh, whether it's playing something or auditioning for something or, you know, career wise. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the, the, the funny thing is, as everyone knows, it's, it's, when you're actually working, then the, then the problems that you're solving are um, the problems that you want to solve, you know, like, what are we trying to accomplish here? What's going on in the scene? Um, How do I keep open? You know, am I going to be seen? You know, they can be all kinds of things. You know, can I be heard is what I'm trying to convey emotionally getting out there. There's all, those are all the sort of fun acting problems that the other problems, the, you know, the problems that happen when you're out of work are, um, they know they can be uh, extremely dark. You know, they, they, you have lots of, lots of doubt, lots of, um, you know, even when you've been doing this a long time, it's state stage actors. And most of the people I know stage actors, um, even, even quite late on, you always think this is going to be your last job. You know, you always think, Oh, how am I, what, what's my next thing? It was interesting. I was just on this long tour, a year-long tour with the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. We were all over the country. Production contract, everything was everything was great. Everything was great. But you could feel the whole company, in certainly in, the, in about the last six weeks, everybody started to think, uh, what's, what's next? What's, you know? And you could feel that focus just gradually sh- shift from, yeah, we're, we're all in this together and we're having fun and, you know, going out to dinner and da, 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 and, and it, it's not that we began to splinter, but people really began to think about what's next. And if some people had jobs, you know, to go to and others who didn't, you could feel that anxiety, even after something like that, where, you know, everybody who finished that has certainly was going to get unemployment and it had some kind of nest egg and all that by the end of that, but you still, there's always that anxiety. So th- there've been many times when, uh, you know, when I've thought this is stupid, you know, I should, I should have got a real job. That whole thing about not wanting ac- any more academics was stupid. I should have gotten an MA or, a, or become a lawyer or, um, I don't know how you solve it. You, 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 you can't give into it too much or, you know, you end up, uh, a drunk or something like that. And then you're kind of useless, uh, professionally, um, I, I would imagine this is one of those situations where, like, being married to an actor, you know, they really get what you're going through. And, of course, you, you were also lucky that Amelia was in this tour with you, so you guys could kind of, you know, talk about this if there was any doubt or, or fears or things like that, and you you understand the other person. Yes, I, I would think that could also be uh, – I mean, it, it didn't come up with this tour because everything is great. It's just – I'm just <laughs> – no, I was just trying to say that even even when things are going really well for people – particularly theater actors, you, there's this kind of dread at the end of every show. But um, yes, and I think this is sometimes, and I don't know because I have no, this is pure speculation, but <clears throat> why it's sometimes difficult for uh, two actors to be together. Although I know of several successful couples, marriages, although you do under, you should be able to understand what the other person is going through and, either A, help, or B, not help. Just, you know, keep your mouth shut, stay out of the way. That's that's a big thing to do, a lot. 
but I've also thought it was, uh, I, th- I think it can be difficult if one person is m- much more successful than another. But again, this is a, com- this is completely a personality thing. If one person mm-hmm. is much more successful than another, I think sometimes that can put a, a, a strain on, um, you know, on a romantic relationship. Um, it, so whatever, whatever you have between you has to be bigger than that. Yeah. Well, I want to ask specifically, um, and, and I do want to get a, to, into a little bit of work in just a second, but um, you've done a number of these tours, whether it's like through kind of more radio plays, mm-hmm. live performances, uh, and then, of course, this was, you know, a full production. Um, how do you keep that fresh for yourself? I mean, some of these plays, I think you've come back to, like the radio things, You've there have been breaks in between, and like mm-hmm. you'll do them again. And how does it, yeah, how, how do you keep up the sense of either discovery for yourself or how do you keep a performance fresh? So that, that kind of, yeah, exactly. So, cause you know, uh, I mean, I imagine there like for myself, I'm not saying I get bored easily, but you know, doing something for, you know, six months or a year it's and doing the same thing every night. Like that's, that's a commitment of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, one kind. It, it is. Um, the two longest things I've done was, which were, was this, a curious incident tour just now. And then I did a, a tour of a musical called crazy for you. That was uh, 22 years ago or something. And that was, a, that was about a year and a half. Uh, they were both, uh, relatively small, um, parts. Um, frankly, and the, the, the more, uh, the, the bigger roles I've done have, have, have just never been that long. Um, I've done a lot of regional theater, uh, but there you're, you know, you're doing five, six, six weeks of performances, you know, if you're lucky. So it, it's, it, it hasn't been too much of a problem, but here's, here's what I think. Um, uh, because I was, you know, I was watching the people who were doing the, the bigger roles in, in all these shows. And I never, in either one, the musical or, or curious, uh, I never thought anyone was, um, dogging it you know no one no one was ever sort of phoning it in that i that i recall now i've seen broadway shows where i thought people were phoning it in and i think that's outrageous i think it's horrible i remember seeing a show once that i actually took um my son and daughter-in-law to uh because it was something that they wanted to see so i'd spent you know a couple hundred bucks on this and um I remember watching it and, and the lead was not good and I'm not going to go into what the show was or who the person was, but uh, he wasn't, he wasn't very good. I thought some of the chorus people seemed to be kind of phoning it in. And I, I mentioned someone, they said, Oh, you know, he's just, he's, he's a replacement. He's only been in it for a week. The, the, the guy who opened it, you know, left after a while. So he's, he's the replacement. And I, I just thought that's absolutely no excuse whatsoever. I mean, I don't understand that. That's it's Broadway. That guy is probably making eight or ten thousand dollars a week, and so not being ready is not an excuse. It's just, and and I actually think that's part of the deal. You know, particularly when you're uh, in these big shows, uh, those two tours, the pay is good. Um, That's your job, and you're making more money than lots of people make. You work three or four hours. A night, and if you include, you know, the fact that, you know, I, 
yes, you, you can't go out to dinner. Yes, in the middle of the afternoon, you start thinking about the show, even when you're doing a small part. Yes, you have to stay physically fit and all that sort of thing. But you're not making brake linings, you know? You're not, you're not on an assembly line. You're not, you're not a doctor. So just, just do your job. And, and it's kind of the same thing you were saying about my attitude before. I don't see right. what's no, so this hard is, about this it. This is the Jeffrey I, honestly, I know, yeah. I honestly do not see what's so hard about that. Now, when you're doing this, this stuff um, happens in Chicago, I know, you know, uh, you don't have the 99-seat thing there, but I know lots of people are working for not very much money. Uh, I saw a show just the other day. Fantastic performance by this young man. Uh, very demanding um, but it was a 99-seat uh, show at, at the Road Theater here in, in North Hollywood. And I was talking to him afterwards, and he's, and, uh, you know, great, great. And he said, you know, thanks. He said, I'm sorry, I got to run. I got to get to work. And somebody said, what do you mean you have to go to work? He said, I, I, I have a bartending shift. I got to go. So his, he, he had to go and make money to live so he could do this essentially non-paid thing that he was doing. Um, for for the love of it, but when you're doing it that way, it 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 can be a little harder. But you know, you owe it, you owe it to the audience you, uh, who've paid money to sit down. Even in 99 seat theater, people are shelling out sure 15, 20, 30, 30 bucks. Um, you owe it to the audience. You owe it to your fellow actors. You just and I don't know what the technique is. I, I don't know what the technique is. That's sort of something you have to discover. You have to. F- keep finding the excitement every time. And sometimes maybe it isn't there exactly every night. You know, you, you have a sort of uh, <laughs> fiduciary obligation to keep your work to a standard uh, when you're doing it professionally because you're being paid. And often it's not particularly well. Sometimes it is well. But it's it's just your obligation. That's your job as a professional. You know, uh, not doing something well because, you know, you're not in the mood or, um, you know, your dog is sick or, you know, you don't like the way things are going politically. That's, I'm sorry, that's Bush League. That's amateur stuff. Right. Amateurs let themselves be thrown by things like that. Right. Even if it's personal. Now, I'm not saying you can't use that in some way. Sure. But to... um but to shortchange the people who are there to see you is, um, it's just amateur in my book. And yeah. that's not good. No, no. It's not I, a I good know. thing. I, I agree. And I'm, I'm not quite sure what the, what the technique is to keep that fresh. To, you have to. There are ways, uh, I'm not quite sure what the mental things. Uh, I'll tell you one thing that helped with Curious Incident was that there was a, a obligatory um, uh, warm-up before the show. Everybody had to show up. It was not optional. That helps, you know, even 15 minutes doing that together, somehow it helps you leave the day behind and get to where you're supposed to be. The physical aspect, I think, is key. You know, if you get your voice in where it's supposed to be, if you're breathing correctly, you're, you, you put yourself into your job the way you, the way you should. That's, that's, that's one way to start. 
Yeah, because I think um, there are many other professions where we would not expect the person to be thrown by, you know, what is going on socially or politically or with their pet, you know, whether it could be at the high end of doctor or lawyer or just someone, you know, uh, at the grocery store. It's like, hey, look, you're being paid to do this thing. I just, you know, I don't need, you know, I just need you to do this thing, please. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, so (laughs) on that note, actually, I'd love to take a really quick look at Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which you played the player a few years back. And I'm sure we could spend an hour and a half uh, or more just talking about the play and the part. But um, there was a particular, well, I I guess I'll just let you kind of set it up or what, you know, what you want to talk about. Uh, Well, I I thought I would just look at this section where I have notes of what I was thinking. It's, it's uh, dealing with a, a, a sort of monologue, a long speech the player has in, in act two. Okay. And, um, the, uh, the director of the show, uh, a man named Steve Stetler is a director I've worked with a number of times and he's become sort of my uh, gold standard for directors. Hmm. Uh, this is at a theater where, uh, Steve, a guy named Tim Fort and Malcolm Ewan, who your Chicago listeners will know, he's like Mr. Stage Management at um, Steppenwolf and Chicago Theater in general. Uh, these three guys uh, have run this uh, theater, uh, a regional theater in Vermont called the Weston Playhouse for uh, many years now. They actually took it from a non-professional summer theater through all the steps that you're supposed to go to. It's now a regional theater, Lort, a Lort Theater. Uh, they're all good directors. Steve, I like because he actually breaks the play down. I realize this is the radio, so you can't see the script I'm thumbing through, but he breaks the play down and names, uh, names the sections, names the beats. Um, and you're always free to, as you, as an actor, you're free to challenge that or talk about it. And, um, uh, you know, we do, but the rehearsal periods at Weston, used to be shorter. They're now more of sort of a standard th- three-week thing. But they used to be, you know, two weeks. And there's not a lot of time for uh, messing around. So uh, with Steve, if you had a, another idea or a better idea and you wanted to try it, you were welcome to do it. But it better work, you know, because <laughs> there's not a lot of time to uh, futz around and do naval exploring and all that kind of thing. Not that there's... I know I'm being disparaging. Not that not that long rehearsal periods are not good, but there's also something to be said for ha- having a framework within which to work and either accepting that or coming up with something better, but coming up with something better now. You know? Right. Anyway. No, I'm I'm curious when you said he names like the the beats and the moments, like what what well, like what's an example of that or or Here's an example. So Rosencrantz and Guildenstern uh, come across uh, or actually the players come across Rosencrantz and Guildenstern for a second time. And um the beat before this uh, is called Marking the Territory. Mm. Where these these guys talk about um what's going on, where they've been. And then this the name of this beat where the player is berating them, I call understanding the betrayal. And you'll note, you notice we've got marking, we've got understanding, we've got words you can work on. The beat after this is called establishing the new order. After that, it was learning from the player. So, right, those are all active 
verbs. Sure. And, and just to give people a frame of reference, uh, I'll have the text um, on the website. But uh, if they're following along, it's the player starts with, we can't look each other in the face. That It's that section that... Yes. The player is, uh, he's, he's, tr- he's trying to shut them up. Gross and Grand's Guild started going on one of their little back and forth things about trying to figure out what had actually gone on. Right. And then he's got this speech where he's, and I have all this written down. So understanding the betrayal is, is sort of the name of this beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I have to do is make them understand. The player has to make Rosencrantz and Guildenstern understand what has happened, what their, because what they did before was walk out. They just left. And so I, as an, the player who's an actor, I'm trying to make these two idiots understand why I feel betrayed, why what they did was wrong. And I wrote down, make them understand first general principles, then the specific betrayal. That came from reading the speech over and over and again, and and sort of seeing how it was constructed. So that's the way I decided it was constructed. He talks in general about you don't understand the humiliation of it to be tricked out of a single assumption that makes our existence viable, that someone is watching. So he's, he's telling them, and then he describes the scene of what it was like when they were acting out this play in their silly costumes and swords and declaiming to the heavens, and then they start to look around and there's nobody watching them. Well, if there's nobody watching an actor... You don't exist in a way. Mm-hmm. He, he's trying to make them understand what a horrible thing they've done. Then I have other notes here. What do I want from them? What do I want them to do? I want to vent to clear the fog of shame and anger. Their apology slash acknowledgement is a way to reclaim my status, my vi- my viability. So these are all things that, you know, mentally you can... You, you can work on. I'm trying to get them to do certain things, which then feeds back, which makes me feel better. Because often that's what scenes are about. I'm trying to get something from you in order to benefit myself. Right, right. But the, the, but the key factor in that is getting something from you. It's not just, you know, I want to feel better about myself. Well, we all want to feel better about, about ourselves, but how do we accomplish that? That's that's the thing that allows you to go forward. At the end of it, I wrote, dealt with, that's the best explanation I can offer. And then I wrote, and my rage is spent. So you know, there's, there, there's, there's an emotional element. This guy's been walking around just furious, so pissed off. And when right. he finally gets a chance to confront these guys, he does. But he, he doesn't just say, what the hell did you do that for? He has to explain to them the whole world then tell them what they did wrong. And by the time he's done that, he's managed to realign himself, re, uh, what's the word I want? Get himself back on the rails. Oh, well, actually, there's that word, uh, equanimity. I think, uh, Ros- yes. Rosencrantz equanimity. Gilles there you go. earlier in the morning. He has. And he, and, and also in so doing, he's, you know, these are all things that you'll hear in various acting classes or techniques. He's also reestablished his status because what they had mm-hmm. done by leaving him high and dry. Uh, was remove his status, and he's now reasserted it over them. It, it's so fascinating to hear you talk about this because I can even 
I can catch myself right now as, as I'm looking at the script and, you know, knowing it's a Tom Stoppard play that there's this sense of, oh, I, I think I know how to, you know, how I would play this scene, mm-hmm. which is not what you want to do. It's, there's this, yes, there's, exactly. there's this yep. idea of, well, what does, you know, what does a Tom Stoppard play sound like? Or, or what's this, you know, if this character's, you know, big and buffoonish, you know, and if you come from that place, it's, it's just not going to resonate. Uh, for you as yeah. an actor, and certainly not with the the, the audience, and and it's it's really um, it's really helpful to hear these things over and over again, kind of drilled in of like, yeah, yeah, this is where this is where you make the connection. Yeah, and and one reason I I picked this particular speech in this particular play because I remember it took a lot of work. I remember, um, you know, spending a lot of time with Steve, kind of alone you know, working this particular scene, because it's, it's, it's a big one. And I have a lot of things written down, which is um, uh, unusual. I, I don't often take a lot of notes. I certainly do take notes. I mean, other than, you know, enter from upstage left with bad. <laughs> That's center. But, because um, these are all things, these are all things you, you hear in every acting class. But, yeah. you know, you, you, when you're in it, you have to sort of be reminded of it. At the bottom of the page, I wrote, this is sense memory not a set speech mm. be in it rather than on it i'll do this s- s- second bit mm-hmm. and and i uh, again what was i, I going to say i was going to say something really really interesting oh uh, that was uh, i remember reading this great thing once that uh, someone had asked uh, anthony hopkins you know how do you the same kind of thing you know, how do you prepare what how do you how do you approach a play he said well i read the play and they went, oh, yes, of course. Great. And then what do you do? And he said, then I read the play again. And then what? He said, I read the play again. And he was probably being a little facetious, but y- you just have to go over it and over it and over it. You know, you kind of read the first time to see what the plot is. You read it the second time for sense. You read it the third time out loud. And, you know, doing things out loud always is different from because what you just said um, – you know, you read a Tom Stoppard piece and you go, oh I, oh, I get this. I know. I know what's going on here. But then you read out loud and you go, oh, wait, how does that, how does that phrase fit in? Uh, and, and it's only after reading it through a few times that you begin to get this kind of thing, this bit where I wrote, make them understand first the general principles, then the specific betrayal. That's, that's the way the speech is written. You know, it's like uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Mm-hmm. That, that You'll just see that in writers all the time, from David Mamet to Shakespeare, you know, whether it's three sentences or 30 lines. That's frequently what these kind of things are. So, just read it. All right, all right, here. We're actors. We pledged our identities, secure in the conventions of our trade, that someone would be watching. And then, gradually, no one was. We were caught high and dry. It was not until the murderer's long soliloquy that we were able to look around, frozen as we were in profile. Our eyes searched you out first confidently, then hesitantly, then desperately, as each patch of turf, each log, every exposed corner, in every direction proved uninhabited. And all the while the murderous king addressed the horizon with his dreary, interminable guilt. Our heads began to move, wary as lizards. The corpse of unsullied Rosalinda peeped through his fingers, and the king faltered. 
Even then, habit and a stubborn trust that our audience spied upon us from behind the nearest bush forced our bodies to blunder on long after they'd emptied of meaning until, like runaway carts, they dragged to a halt. No one came forward. No one shouted at us. The silence was unbreakable. It imposed itself upon us. It was obscene. We took off our crowns and swords and cloth of gold and moved silent on the road to Elsinore. That was wonderful. <laughs> and at the end of that, Guildenstern gives him sort of a slow clap and he says, a brilliant, brilliant, if these eyes could weep. Even in telling the story, the, the player gets caught up in playing. Right. But you get the, the, the point was he was devastated. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and you, see that, you see that through line. It's not, just, it's not just an actor talking to hear his own voice. It's, yeah. you know, you see the, the pain and, and, you, and the, the imagery is so beautiful, but you just you see how that is um, really pushing him through this. Um, so, yeah. Wow. Thank you. Jeffrey, that was great. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. For for uh, a, a, a midweek uh, reading of the player, it was actually uh, I, I loved yeah, it. So yeah. uh, now I love to come, I, now I love well, to see good. the show. But um, all right, I just have a few more questions, and these are more kind of uh, rapid fire because I, I, we could talk for another couple hours. Yeah. but uh, we yeah. all have things to do. But your your answers don't have to be rapid fire or as quick as uh, as quick as the questions. One thing I'm I'm very curious about is what was it like to work on the uh, a Steven Spielberg movie, you know, in, in the BFG? You know, that's something that so many actors think, oh, God, I'd love to work on a Spielberg film. And, you know, and, and I know that is just one of many pro film and TV projects you've done, but... Uh it was great. It was an incredibly uh, disciplined and well put together cast, including the the drivers who would pick you up. They kept saying, "Oh, this, this is the best movie to work on." Wow! They'd start it. They'd start at seven in the morning. They, they'd finish at five every night. Uh, everybody knew what they were doing. These are all people he's worked with many times before. Very professional crew. So it was all uh, you know. There's no nothing, no weirdness or anything. the 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 most fun part was. Uh, the day of my close-up, actually, uh, Stevens couldn't be there. He, he was down in Los Angeles, so they'd set up a monitor in his house. And um, we, we did a couple of different takes with his uh, amazing um, cinematographer. You know, so we, let's do a little of this, a little of this. We'll send it to Steven and see what he says. And um, they did that, and, and someone said, oh, come over here, and, you know, Stephen wants to talk to you. So I'm literally holding somebody's iPhone. <laughs> and Stephen, hey, good morning, Jeffrey, how you doing? Good morning, good morning. It's just like eight in the morning. And, um, and, and he began to give me a few suggestions, which were, you know, perfectly normal. It's like, wait until the camera stops before you react, and then we'll do it another time where you, you're reacting as you feel the camera come in towards you, something like that. But the funny thing was that as he was talking, the whole time he was beating eggs, he was making breakfast <laughs> in his kitchen. So he's like, he's like beating his, yeah, wait until the camera, yeah, I'm on the phone, I'll be right there, and uh, wait until the camera stops, and it was, it was very funny. Well, it sounds like just such a lesson in- Very enjoyable. Somebody who knows exactly what he wants, and, and somebody who has yeah. worked for decades, uh, you know, like yourself, and just kind of knows what he's looking for, and knows how to approach yeah. it, and knows how to communicate it, too, which is also yes. really important. Yeah. Now, I'm also wondering, you know, since you do 
a lot of teaching and, and, and I knew you kind of, well, actually, I guess I did know you as a fellow actor, um, first, but then as a, as a teacher in, in later years, what advice would you give to, you know, smart driven college age or, you know, college graduated students about to enter this real world? You know, you said you kind of mm-hmm. wanted to, uh, delay that a little bit, or if you had to go back and tell your, you know, 22 year old self of like, no, you're not going to go to London. You got to get out there. This is terrible. I, I really don't have any advice. Apparent, apparent, you know, now I'll spend 10 minutes giving you advice. Uh, you just, you have to be involved in every possible thing you can, because you never know, there's, there's no direct route. You know, you don't, you, you can't intern at a law firm and then, you know, become a junior partner and then be, it's, it's just, or, you know, be a doctor where the, the road is a little more uh, laid out for you. Um, you just never know where it's going to come from. So um, I would say you have to do everything. Uh, I, I used to advise people, you know, if if you really don't, if you really want to do film and TV, you should come to Los Angeles uh, if that's your decision, because you're not going to get much in New York. But that's not true anymore. From uh, there's a lot of film and TV going on in New York. I will say about doing small theater projects in, you know, in Los Angeles, 99 seat stuff where you're not being paid. Uh, absolutely do it. Um, because you'll meet people. It's the people you meet. It's the connections you make, you know, the director you work with or the writer or someone who will, uh, one hopes use you again. My one piece of advice for doing 99 seat theater or non-paying theater is to by all means do it, but make sure you know why you're doing it because there will come a point probably in rehearsal, late in rehearsal, you go, this is bullshit. I can't stand this. Why am I doing this? I'm not making any money. I'm going from here to my bartending job. And if you don't know why you're doing it, you'll be lost Mm -hmm. and you'll feel this obligation to stay in it um, because, you know, you like somebody in it or you just feel an obligation. But if you know why you're doing it, you like to play or you want to meet that director or or you just need the experience or, um, you know, a- any reason can be good. You just, you're going to need a reason to hang on to at some point. Um, so just make sure you know why you're doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Cause, uh, and, and the other thing is if in those, in those situations, if, if things aren't going well and it's causing you more stress than, than it's worth it, you should bail out. Um, uh, people often say this, you know, you Saying no is the most empowering thing you can do in in our profession and probably in any profession um, because then then you've actually made a decision so if if you if you get into something and it's not working out, say no, move on it's not the end of the world. you'll work again. I swear to God I've oftentimes thought I wouldn't work again. you'll always work again or maybe you won't <laughs> maybe you'll finally get out maybe you'll find a more interesting thing to do you know. Maybe I'll go back to law school. I have a ne- I have a nephew who thought he wanted to be a producer in the movies, and um, you know, it kind of didn't work out. He kept tr- he kept plugging away at it, and finally went back to law school. And now he's, you know, he's doing fine as a, as an attorney. You know, and that was late in life. It was well after. I mean, not late in life, but he was in his thirties. Yeah, when he decided this. So maybe something else will happen. But don't don't just waste your time plugging away on something that isn't rewarding. Yeah. Just go. Um, what else? What else can I advise? <laughs> Try to keep your health. <laughs> well, I, no, this, is, this has been a really uh, fantastic conversation. I, I really enjoyed talking. I mean, there's just 
there's so much I have learned about you, which has been really uh, exciting. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, this, is, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for your time, Jeffrey. I really appreciate it. Well, I've enjoyed it. Thank you for um, talking to me. It's, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Have, have some of that popcorn for me. Oh, <laughs> Garrett's. <laughs> uh, sounds good, Jeffrey. All right. Thank you. Thanks. It's Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss anything. And if you can take a minute to rate and review this in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts, that will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all comments and thank you very much for doing that. Be sure to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash podcast for the show notes and any links from today's episode. You can also follow the show at WA Journey on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to connect and let us know what did you enjoy from the show. Don't forget to check out freemeditationcourse.com. Sign up right now to start making your life easier, calmer, and more enjoyable. Thank you again to today's guest. I really appreciate and value all the people that contribute their time to making this show possible. I'm Nathan Agan, and thanks for listening. 